The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. China's central bank unexpectedly cuts its key lending rate amid weaker-than-expected retail and factory data, with COVID outbreaks continuing to weigh on the world's second-largest economy. The S&P 500 posts its fourth straight winning week and crosses a key technical level ahead of a slew of major retail earnings. But the Fed's Thomas Barkin issues a warning for the sector. Demand is definitely softening, uh, particularly if you sell things to lower-income consumers who are increasingly stressed. Uh, or if you sell products or services that really were uh, beneficiaries of the COVID boom. Saudi Aramco posts a 90% jump in second quarter profit to a record $48.4 billion, with the oil major benefiting from a surge in crude prices. And German finance minister Christian Lindner says he opposes taxing excessive profits, claiming it would expose the country's tax system to, quote, arbitrariness. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Juliana joining me this week. Nice to see you on set. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the five days together. Yeah, it's going to be fun-filled, I think. <laughs> a lot of big data to kick off the week with as China's central bank unexpectedly cut a key interest rate for the second time this year, withdrawing cash from the financial system in a bid to shore up credit demand. The PBOC lowered its one-year medium-term lending facility on $400 billion of loans to some financial institutions by 10 basis points to 2.75%. China's economy unexpectedly slowed in industrial output and retail sales coming in well below expectations. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, we know there have been these COVID restrictions in place, but to what extent is it derailing the economy across the board? Well, Karen, as you can see there, we've got a disappointing set of data out of China today, but not just today, over the last few days, actually, because we also got that PBOC's monetary policy support report, which didn't look too good either. So really, it's no surprise as to why we did see the central bank over in China actually making this cut to the medium term lending facility rate, although it did certainly surprise the markets. We were speaking to an analyst off the back of this this morning, certainly talking about the timing of this this rate cut uh, suggesting uh, that uh, perhaps it was a little too little too late and uh, the PBOC perhaps behind the curve because this was announced about 45 minutes uh, before the, this data all came out and economists have certainly suggested that perhaps there are a couple of considerations for this because of course previously we have seen a, a relatively restrained response to monetary easing uh, in the last couple of months and one of those is perhaps that the transmission of this previous policy in the steps that the PBOC has been taking is maybe weaker than expected, really underscored by the data that we have seen today uh, coming in below those expectations and slower than what we saw in June. The other consideration, perhaps inflation, as we saw out of China last week, is not a huge concern. And the other thing, of course, is we also got real estate data today with those new home prices still painting a certainly fragile picture of the property sector uh, as well. 
So uh, this certainly coming off the back of all of this. And what this data has certainly told us today is that this recovery momentum off the back of those lockdowns we saw at the start of the year, just when things were starting to look better, is now losing some steam because we've got consumption looking weak, underpinned by those retail sales, just 2.7%. The market was looking at 5%. And that really does show that consumer confidence is still sluggish. And of course, anecdotally, we know that people are holding back on their spending because of A, the fear factor around the virus, these lockdowns, these COVID restrictions, and, you know, these rules around mobility, but also because of the fact that, as we say, inflation's not a big concern over in China, but we've heard anecdotally that income is. And that was another big takeaway that we actually got from the data, what it's telling us about the employment picture at the moment. The jobless rate actually came off a bit, 5.4. So that was the good news. That was perhaps the only bright spot in all this data. But when you look at the youth unemployment, 19.9%, that's the highest on record. So certainly that is a very worrying trend. And of course, consumption and the job picture going hand in hand, because of course you have a job, you're more inclined to go out and spend your money. But it also tells us this data that we are looking at a relatively uneven recovery over in China as well, because over the last few weeks, we saw an upside surprise when it came to the export numbers. That certainly is a bright spot. We also saw uh, the services sector activity coming in well below, uh, I should say, above expectations. But all the other data, the PMI, the inflation and the import data has certainly been uh, pointing to much weaker domestic demand. And so, as I say, we have seen the PBOC certainly reacting to this in terms of these policy steps off the back of this. The next thing to watch will be, of course, that loan prime rate, because we know, ladies, that the MLF rate typically acts as a guide for that benchmark interest rate as well. Back to you in London. Sam, thank you so much for breaking down all the data. Sam Vadas joining us from Singapore. Moving over to Japan, where the economy rebounded at a slower than expected pace in the second quarter, propped up by stronger consumer demand. GDP rose for a third consecutive quarter, expanding by an annualized rate of 2.2 percent, 30 basis points lower than expected. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida ordered an additional set of support measures to contain rising inflation by early September, including boosting funding for regional governments and continuing a cap on imported wheat prices. Rajiv Biswas, Asia-Pacific Chief Economist, S&P Global, Global Market Intelligence, joins us now. Rajiv, thank you for being with us on Squawk Box this morning. I, I want to kick off with the the China data. Our reporter over in Singapore just rounded out the overnight data for us. I wonder to what extent the policy support being offered by Chinese authorities can offset the negative impact of COVID lockdowns and the other pressures that are facing the Chinese economy right now. Well, the Chinese economy is clearly facing a lot of headwinds based on the data that we've seen today for July with retail sales still quite sluggish and industrial production also relatively moderate uh, in terms of pace of expansion. So there have been some stimulus measures from the PBOC, but I think there's a lot of headwinds still uh, affecting the Chinese economy because confidence remains weak, I think. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether there'll be more COVID-related restrictive measures imposed in the coming months if there's other outbreaks. And another important concern is the downside risks related to the residential construction sector, because clearly we've seen 
a very significant slowdown in residential construction starts. Uh, we've seen the, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of investors have become concerned about the del delays to their new build projects, and that's affected consumer confidence uh, in terms of those investors in the property market. So there could be still headwinds to the economy from the property sector yet to come. Uh, because I think the outlook is still of considerable uncertainty amongst uh, investors in new build properties given all the problems that we've seen over the last 12 months. So with all of that said, although there is an improvement in growth momentum in the second half uh, so far, uh, I think China's looking at uh, you know relatively sluggish performance this year in terms of growth. We do expect some improvement next year, but there's a lot of headwinds and uncertainties still ahead. And of course, one big uh, factor that could yet come into play is that the US and EU economies are slowing down. So we could see some cooling in exports from China as well. So all of that makes for quite a lot of headwinds affecting the Chinese economic outlook right. uh, in the right. remainder of this year. Rajiv, in terms of the downturn in China's property sector, can you go a little bit deeper into what's driving the delays in the residential property sector and what the near-term outlook is? When uh, could things turn around? When could they improve? Well, I think these problems uh, were related to the over-leverage segments of the development uh, industry because the Chinese regulatory authorities uh, in 2020 put in what's known as the three red lines that meant that they were putting much greater scrutiny on leverage amongst property developers because they were concerned that uh, leverage could result in uh, a crisis in the property sector that would have broader systemic implications for the overall economy. But because of those tougher restrictions, which meant that uh, heavily leveraged developers were not able to um, get the same kind of liquidity as they previously had, that affected their cash flow, that affected the rate at which they were able to develop properties. And we saw a lot of stressed developers having problems even during 2021. And so what's happened now is that there's been quite a few projects, new build projects that have been delayed. Uh, that's meant that uh, a lot of investors in the property market have faced delays in their projects. And so they've been unwilling to pay their mortgages because they're saying that they're, they're facing long delays in the completion of their projects. So there is somewhat of a crisis, at least in the new build sector of the property sector. And as a, as a result, there's been a very dramatic slowdown in uh, new residential starts. Right. And the problems are deeper than that, because if we look at the pipeline of investment in land acquisitions by developers, that's also fallen even more dramatically, which signals that these problems could extend for some time because uh, there's not a lot of new projects coming on stream in, in the you know in the next couple of years ahead. And that will mean that the slowdown is more protracted. Right. So I don't think there's going to be a quick fix. And I think this is going to be a, a long drawn out process of rebuilding uh, co confidence in the outlook 
further recovery of the sector. Right, Jeff, if we piece this together from fixed asset investment in the property side to what we're seeing elsewhere in retail, where confidence has been hit to industrial output uh, given the COVID restrictions impacting manufacturing and, of course, the demand internationally that uh, central banks uh, are trying to ward off. What does this mean for stability in China? Because we've been talking for many years about this migrant workforce that uh, needed to have a certain target to ensure stability, the movement from the rural areas to urban areas. That's all been disrupted with COVID now. What are we seeing in terms of stability as this weakness crops up right across the economy? I think we're, we're not at a point yet where those sort of issues are at the forefront. But I think obviously with relatively sluggish growth, um, in the order of about 4% GDP growth this year is our estimate. Uh, obviously, there is an impact on the uh, labor market, and we're seeing that in the employment data uh, with the unemployment rate slightly higher, and particularly with lack of opportunities for those joining the workforce. So I think those sort of issues would take time to evolve into a more serious problem. So I think for the moment, that's... Uh, something that's evolving yet but of course the government will be keen to try to rev up uh, employment growth and they are putting in stimulus measures they're aiming to ramp up infrastructure spending uh, and we've seen some stimulus measures so i think there are some fundamental responses from the government that will help and we do expect growth to improve somewhat next year uh, on the assumption that these covid related problems uh, ease at least uh, in 2023. So we're expecting growth in 2023 to get back over 5%, which will certainly help in terms of uh, the labor market issues that uh, China is facing at the moment. That was the expectation previously that uh, China, once it reopened, things would start to look like they did previously, a return to normal. But of course, uh, Omicron hit. And uh, we, at this point, we don't know if there are further variants. And if China persists with the zero COVID strategy, they could continue to see some of this weakness. Uh, you know, I was looking at one of the data points that uh, some Chinese are paying back their debt in advance. This is even with rates being cut. They're so concerned about the outlook here. Do you think zero COVID as a policy in China has a limited time frame now? I think this is the great uh, unknown, I would say, in terms of the policy direction in relation to responding to the pandemic. I think, obviously, at the moment, that policy is still in place, and that means that the near-term risks are still very much there of further outbreaks in certain cities, and that could result in at least restrictive measures, if not outright lockdowns. So the near-term outlook is definitely still very much clouded by the risks related to the COVID uh, situation and the policy response that's been in play now for some time in terms of how China's addressing those outbreaks. I think in 2023, we expect that there will be some evolution with the development of additional responses in terms of vaccines and treatment. So our expectation is that these problems will gradually uh, be in abeyance in 2023. But it is very much dependent on how the new outbreaks may occur. And also what's also unknown is whether new variants might affect not only China, but other countries as well. So there's still a lot of uncertainty about how that may play out in the uh, year ahead. Rajiv, thank you so much for your analysis this morning. Rajiv Biswas, Asia Pacific Chief Economist, S&P Global Market Intelligence.
Chinese President Xi Jinping is reportedly eyeing his first face-to-face -face meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden in November. According to sources speaking with The Wall Street Journal, the meeting would come on the fringes of a Southeast Asian tour, which would reportedly include visits to Bali for the G20 Leaders Summit and Bangkok to attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. In-person attendance at either of the events would mark the Chinese leader's first international trip in nearly three years. A delegation of U.S. lawmakers landed in Taiwan on Sunday, just 12 days after a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi angered China. According to the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taipei, the five-member delegation led by Democratic Senator Ed Markey will meet senior leaders to discuss U.S.-Taiwan relations, regional security and trade. China responded to Pelosi's visit by conducting a series of intense military drills off the island's coast. Coming up on the show, the U.S. big box retailers, including the likes of Walmart and Home Depot, are slated to report this week. We'll look ahead at what to expect next. And for more on uh, China's attempt to uh, try and deal with the COVID outbreaks amid a weakening in the economy, uh, don't forget you can head to uh, Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. U.S. markets closed out the week on strong footing. These were the moves on Friday. The Dow Jones gained about 1.3 percent. S&P 500 rallied 1.7 percent with all sectors in that index trading higher. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq was the outperformer, gaining more than 2 percent. This closed out a strong week overall. We had U.S. equities gain for a fourth week in a row. And, and what was driving that? Well, we got lower than expected inflation data over the course of the week, suggesting that inflation is beginning to cool. The big question now, how sticky will this elevated inflation prove to be? We also had a strong week in particular for energy markets with the energy sector outperforming. It rallied about 7% for the week overall. Turning to fixed income, there's a picture for treasuries and where we stand for the week ahead. Right now, the U.S. 10-year treasury note trading with a yield of about 2.84%. The two-year note trading at 3.25% or so, so significantly higher there. And then out toward the longer end of the curve U.S. 30-year trading with a yield of about 3.11%. Dollar crosses as investors put more money to work in equity markets last week in a bit of a risk on trade. We saw the U.S. dollar pull back. The dollar index uh, lost about 0.9% for the week overall. This morning, we've got a little bit of dollar strength coming back after the sell-off. So sterling trading lower versus the greenback by about uh, 12 basis points to 121.14. Euro also trading slightly lower versus the dollar at around 102. 45. Uh, looking at energy markets, I mentioned the outperformance of the energy sector from a stock perspective. We did see a rally in the price of oil last week. This morning, a marginal pullback. Brent and WTI each trading down by about 1% to $97 a barrel and $91 a barrel 
prospectively. Those Saudi Aramco earnings over the weekend getting a huge amount of focus. We're going to dive into all the detail there a little bit later in the program. In the overnight session right now, this is the picture for Asian stocks. So let me remind you, South Korean markets are closed today. Hang Seng over in Hong, Hong Kong trading about 18 basis points lower. Interestingly, despite that disappointing data out of China, which we discussed in the start of the program, Shanghai Composite is actually holding firm this morning. Nikkei 225 over in Japan outperforming up about 1.1%. European opening calls. This is the picture for how Europe is expected to open. We've got the CAC 40, the Zetra DAX, and the FTSE 100 all looking at a firmer start to trade this morning. Uh, also, as a reminder, in terms of market closures, we've got the FTSE MIB over in Italy closed for trade today. Karen. Let's take a look at some of the Fed speakers. As the Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin told CNBC, he expects the Federal Reserve to continue hiking rates until inflation is brought back down and remains around its 2% target for a sustained period of time. Barkin welcomed last week's inflation prints, which pointed to signs of prices easing, but said it's too soon for the Fed to begin pulling the brakes on its tightening cycle. We're happy to see uh, inflation start to move down. And I'd like to see a, a period of sustained uh, inflation under control. Um, and until we do that, I think we're just going to have to continue to move rates into restrictive territory. You'd like to see inflation running at our target, which is 2% on the PCE. And so I'd like to see it running at our target for some time. Heads of American industry remain buoyant in the face of a potential recession. CEOs from several U.S. industrial groups say they are continuing to greenlight new projects thanks to strong backlogs, pricing and a potential windfall from Washington's newly passed Inflation Reduction Act. Our colleague Seema Modi for this report. A number of industrial CEOs throwing cold water on the prospect of a recession, citing strong pricing tailwinds, moderation in input costs, supply chain picture improving somewhat. Now, at Jeffrey's Midcap Industrial Conference this week, executives at Terex noting good visibility into 2023 and strong pricing. Lenox International, a provider of heating and ventilation, said labor issues at its commercial manufacturing plant seems to be under control. Manufacturer Carlisle said pipeline for roofing projects remains strong with contractor backlogs at high levels. The Inflation Reduction Act, also seen as a win for a few names in the industrial space, like Cummins, the maker of engines, and General Electric, both benefiting from tax credits around clean energy. Shares of Cummins up about 15% in the past month, GE up 26% over the same period after a Q2 earnings beat. Markets are now looking ahead to earnings from John Deere next week. Analysts pointing to farmer sentiment improving as wheat prices stabilize. Evercore ISI upgrading the stock ahead of its report to a buy, citing that improved sentiment in their stock price over $410 a share. For CNBC Business News, I'm Sima Modi. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.